welcome to the Dr. Christian Heim podcast, where we're living for preventative mental health, love and compassion. So great to have you here again. I'm Caroline Heim, and I'm really excited today because we start a new podcast series on love. This is for everyone. We need more love in this world. It's protective for your mental health, so it helps to know your love and show your love. So important for getting on with all the people in your life and for your mental health. The first in this series is called, What is this force called love? Hey, some exciting news before we start. We're starting this series on love to coincide with Dr. Heim's new book, The Seven Types of Love, Navigating Love in a Fractured World. If you'd like a sneak peek, a free copy of the first chapter, go onto our website and navigate to the bottom of the homepage. In these uncertain times, please stay mentally healthy and share your love. Here's Dr. Christian Heim. Yes, hello, it's Dr. Christian Heim, living for mental health, preventative mental health, love and compassion. And I'm excited because we're starting a new series. This is the first of the Love Podcasts, and we're calling it, What is this force called love? So love protects mental health. I'll get into that just a bit more a bit later. But what is love, scientifically speaking? Is it just an emotion? Is it a behavior that we all have to put up with? Is it a brain chemical that's driving us crazy? Are we all on some weird trip? We think we know what love is because we all experience it. Well, I hope that we all do to some extent. But As you'll find out, and as you probably know, defining it and understanding love scientifically is actually very difficult. Look, we can describe some of the brain chemicals that mediate love. And yes, we're talking about oxytocin and serotonin, vasopressin, endorphins and dopamine to a lesser degree. But that only describes the workings of love in the brain. It says nothing about what love actually is as a substance or a force or its purpose. Uh, We haven't quite come up with an agreed definition for love. People are pulling in different directions around this, and we don't understand why it is. Yeah, sure, we know that love is ultimately for survival, just like everything like your left ankle is for survival, but we want to know a bit more about it. Love, not your left ankle, all right? Love, unlike your left ankle, is a powerful force. It's intangible, unlike your left ankle, like gravity, magnetism, electricity, energy, and even life itself. And that is something that we still don't understand. And I promise to leave your left ankle alone at the moment. So why am I doing a series on love? As cliche as it sounds, what the world needs now is love, sweet love, a whole lot more of it, not just in our society, but each of us as individuals. As we go through this coronavirus crisis, we're getting to express our love less and less, and we're all feeling the effects. But there are some definite reasons why I, as a psychiatrist, am particularly interested in love. Now, obviously, this is not just the love partnership, sexual relationship type of love. This is love as an all-encompassing thing. And later on, I will get into what I call the seven love types. But at the moment, we're just talking about love as a concept in itself. So I'll let you know that love is protective for your mental health. And look, a recent study shows that a lack of love, or in other words, 
loneliness, if you experience profound loneliness, it's the same as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That's how much it takes away from your life and how much of a risk factor lonely is, loneliness is for dying early. Well, if you don't have love in your life, it's like you're smoking half a packet of cigarettes a day. And quite frankly, as a doctor, that tells me that it's a lot more of a problem than, than we actually realize. The other thing is there was a lovely book put out oh, about 15 years ago now by a child psychiatrist by the name of Bruce Perry, and it was called Born for Love. And what he wanted to show in his book was that love protects mental health, particularly for children, particularly in trauma. And I'm convinced of the protective value of love as a psychiatrist. I have a personal acquaintance who, let's say she went through a lot of trauma in her life. This was in another country in South America, and she has grown up her whole life. She's in her 80s now, and she has never needed to see a psychiatrist, even though she suffered some incredibly awful experiences that would be classified as severe trauma. And... I ask her why, and she says, because my family, my husband, my grandchildren are like a warm bath. Their love soaks out of me all that trauma and makes me feel alive. They are the only balm that I need. That's how protective it is, because as a psychiatrist, when I'm working with somebody, particularly those with trauma, I look for love in their life. I look for the people that care about them. I look for what their home life is like and what I call protective factors, because I know that this will help people get better. I look for love in people's lives and I actively encourage people to find more love in their life. Now, as we go through this whole series, I'm going to ask you not to go gaga on me. What do I mean by that? Well, as soon as we start talking about things like love or sex or relationships, because they affect us a lot personally, they affect our emotions. And so we start thinking about these things in terms of emotions rather than thinking in terms of rationale. It's like when somebody starts playing a love song. yourself shutting down your thinking se uh, uh, sections and you open up your emotional centers and you just enjoy the music and when we start talking about love you will start thinking about love experiences or just immerse in the feeling and what this does is it actually shuts down some of our thinking all right now obviously feeling love is wonderful but I'll ask you to keep your thinking centers open while we go through this, because the aim is to know about love so we can show love more. So let me give you a little outline of what we're going to be looking at today. We'll be talking about science, forces, then we'll go into some psychiatrists that have worked closely with this concept of understanding love. And I'm talking about René Spitz, 
John Bowlby uh, and Thomas Lewis and a group of psychiatrists from California. And all of these psychiatrists sought to understand something about the relationship of love and life. And interestingly enough, I'll start in space and I'll end in space. But before all of that, I'm going to start with a little story. And this is a true story about my father. So this story happened when I was about 10 or 11 years old. And as a family, we used to go camping to one particular lake every year, straight after New Year's Eve. And sometimes my father had some work to do, so uh, we would be dropped off beforehand and he would go back to the city, get some work done, and then he would come back to join his family a bit later. On this particular day, it was raining heavily and my father was coming back to see us and he had a car accident. And I said, Papa, what happened? Why did you have this car accident? He said, well, as I was getting closer and closer to seeing you, your mother and your brothers and sisters, I was getting more and more excited. So I started going faster and faster around some of the bends. And because it was raining, I lost it and I hit a pole. That was the power of love. That was the force that was driving him because he was getting excited about seeing the people that he loved. When I was 10 or 11 years old, I didn't really understand what happened. But now that I have a family of my own and my own children, that could so easily happen to me because love is a force. And you have to hold it together sometimes just to get through life because love can be so strong that you might just lose it sometimes. All right, so we're going to be looking at what that force actually is. What was that force that, in a sense, caused my father to have that accident? I know you can say he should just have been watching the road a bit more, but he was feeling a very strong force. To answer that question, we're going to go to science. And science, as you know, is a combination of empirical observation and rational theory or thought and experience. First of all, you see an observation, like let's say a couple of planets that move around in the heavens, but they seem to be going backwards sometimes, and then they go forwards, and we don't know what's happening. So you come up with a theory. Oh, of course, says people from two and a half thousand years ago. All these planets move according to music of the spheres. They are moving on circles upon circles upon circles, and sometimes the circles make it look as though they're going backwards. Then, of course, uh, in about the 16th century, when we get the telescope, uh, we find that this theory is actually wrong, that the Earth is not the center of the universe, that actually all these heavenly bodies go around the sun. And then we refine these theories and uh, we get better theories. Then we start amassing evidence to see if this new theory is true. So Galileo looks out at the moons of Jupiter and he can see moons going around the planet Jupiter, which just leads evidence to this idea that it's actually the Earth going around the Sun. And then we land something like the Pathfinder on Mars, and we can see that the Sun is so much smaller, which means it must be so much more further away. So we start to think, okay, Copernicus is right. The Sun is the center of our solar system. And then when we look at the Moon, how it behaves, and how Venus reflects light, we go, yeah, we're starting to be on the right track. So science in days of old, and I'm talking about ancient Greece, 
uh, had this connection between music, mathematics, and astronomy. And they came up with theories to explain the universe in terms of music and mathematics. Mathematics works terribly well. Music is more of a metaphor. Now, I will put to you that as far as our theories of love is concerned, we're still at the music of the spheres stage because we can't even hold a piece of love. We can't put it under a microscope or at the other end of a telescope. We still use metaphors like love is in the air or love is a many splendor thing or we have a relationship made in heaven. And all of this seems to suggest that love is this big celestial sort of a thing and it's tied up with music and we use a lot of music metaphors with love. Uh, we're in harmony, we're clashing, oh, we resonate, we're out of harmony, we're tuned to each other, we really get on well, we're in love. There's a lot of musical imagery in how we speak of love. With all of that, I'm saying that because I want to get you a little bit off balance and away from this idea that science knows what love is because it doesn't. It can explain some of the workings of love in the brain in terms of neuroanatomy and uh, neurochemistry. But as far as knowing what love is concerned, look, it's a force. It's a bit like gravity. Science knows what gravity is, right? It's a force of attraction between two objects. But you go, yeah, but what is it really? Uh, 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 magnetism. We know that magnetism is a force between objects which involves polarity. So this force can push or pull. Yeah, that describes it. But what is magnetism itself? Um, um, electricity. We know that electricity is a force. It's an energy that exists between charged particles. Yeah, but what is electricity actually? Well, it's energy. Well, what's energy? Well, um, um, energy is a quantitative property that can be measured. Well, yeah, we can measure the effects of energy, but we don't actually know what energy is. And here's the point that I'm trying to make. Science is good when you can see and touch something, then we can analyze it completely. But love, just like gravity, magnetism, electricity, energy, it's not like that. It's more like some other intangible things like consciousness. Uh, we still don't have a good definition of consciousness, yet it is responsible for everything you experience and everything that you're aware of. What about life? Oh, sure, I know what life is. It's an entity that can adapt and it can reproduce and it's part of this world's enemy, uh, energy system. But you know what? We still don't know what makes the difference between a live pig and a dead pig if the two are next to each other. We don't know what that energy called life actually is. And so love is actually like that. Love is a set of emotions, but it's more than that. It is a force between us. It happens inside us and between us. And we are very, very sensitive to it. And we want more of it. We want to be able to experience it, and to do that, we will need to understand that. So to go on now, I'm going to start tying this idea of love to the idea of life itself. And to do that, I'm going to delve into the work of some psychiatrists. And I feel a little bit of pride in doing this because psychiatrists work 
in a sense, at the edge of our understanding. We are working with the mind, not the brain, which means that we enter into somebody's subjective reality rather than an objective reality. We try to be objective. We try to keep the two together. But as love, as I'm arguing, is part of a subjective reality, just like consciousness is, so too psychiatrists work in this area of not only consciousness, but only, but also love. To begin the work of tying love to life itself, I'm going to look at the work of Austrian-American psychoanalyst René Spitz. Now, he was actually born in the 19th century and did a lot of work analyzing children. His question was, why do children get psychiatric conditions early in childhood? Look, orphanages, uh, particularly those that were run as part of a hospital in the early 1900s, uh, had a mortality rate of over 70% in the first year of a baby's life. That's huge. That's terrible. Uh, these are these were babies with no medical condition. They were sent to these hospital orphanages just as a place to live. And they were run like a hospital, which meant that they were really very clean and they had good food. But they had such a high mortality rate. And so people were asking why. René Spitz was one of the people who looked at this question. By the time of the 1940s, when he was doing his studies, it was less than 10%, but there were still very high rates of psychiatric illnesses. Why? From studies in the 1940s, he found out that if a child was separated from their mother for greater than three months, then it would have a terrible psychiatric condition that he actually called an anaclyctic depression. They would start whining and whinging, and then the babies would actually withdraw. And it was like you weren't there. And for him, this actually meant that they were withdrawing their life because there was nobody there actually to love them. Sure, there were people feeding them and taking care of their every need, but nobody did the usual things that we do with babies. Go Google Gaga, hold them tight and sing them songs and all those little things, all those things show that there's another human being next to this baby. And that is actually what helped keep it alive. These babies were dying of infectious diseases. It's not as though they just died by themselves, but they were at such a much higher risk of these infectious diseases. And now we have a branch of medicine called psychoneuroimmunology that basically shows that the mind and the emotions, psycho, are connected to the brain, neuro, which is strongly connected to the immune system immunology. And that's where we get the word psychoneuroimmunology. They are all connected. So from these studies from René Spitz, and they're basically two studies. One was actually called Hospitalism, an inquiry into the genesis of psychiatric conditions in early childhood. And the second one was called Anaclyctic Depression. So children had a poor prognosis if they were separated from their mother, particularly around the age of five or six months. And if it was longer for three months, then the situation was almost irreversible. What I mean by that is they had an inordinately high risk of dying. In the course of two years, a third of the children that were not returned to their mothers died of 
respiratory diseases or measles or ear infections, things like that. I do want to let you know that this is one of these scientific studies that it wasn't like we took babies and we did things for one and we didn't do things for the other, all right? That would have been ethically unsound. What Rene Spitz did was observe what was going on and codify why some babies did well and some didn't. His conclusions from these studies affect the way we handle infants and babies today. He said there are three things that you have to do. Number one is prevention. Don't separate babies from their mothers, particularly during the first day, the first day, sorry, the first year, the first year is crucial. You see, for something like the first six months of life, a baby doesn't even know that they are a separate person, separate from their mother. They just know that this heartbeat, these hands, this love, this sustaining human being is going to be with them. So to take them away at that stage is actually very, very difficult and not good for them. The second thing that René Schmitz said we needed was restitution. If for some reason a baby needed to be separated from its mother, then get them back to the mother as soon as you can. As soon as the illness has resolved, whatever, get them back to the mother. Then the third thing that he advocated for was what he called substitution. If you cannot get a child back together with its mother, then find another mother figure. And yes, that can be a male, that can be anybody else. It would be good if it was somebody close to the family, but a foster mother, a foster carer, somebody who is going to love the child is essential. So from the studies of René Spitz, I want to point out that the difference between one group of children that did well and one group of children that did not had to do with love, had to be close with the mother, had to be reunited with the mother, or else they ended up at a high risk of certain infections. And to me, that's very important because to me, that is a very direct connection between love and life. So that, in a sense, was the observation part of the science of loving children. The theory came from a psychoanalyst, British, by the name of John Bowlby. And his theory, what we call attachment theory, is one of the leading theories in psychiatry today. His keen observation was this, or his theorizing was this. There is no such thing as an infant alone. Any infant, any baby has to exist with a mother figure. Otherwise, it will die. So he saw that the giving of love, family love from a mother was not some sort of optional extra that we have, but it was worked into our biology. If we didn't have love from a mother, we would actually die. So to put it in his terms, we are attached to a mother or a mother figure. And that attachment makes all the difference. And his theory was this, that we as human beings, right into our adult life, we naturally attach to people who are close to us. And he, one of his seminal papers was called The Making and Breaking of Effectual Bonds. And this is like a chemical idea that says that all of chemical reactions are the making and breaking of hydrogen bombs. Bombs. Bonds. So, 
What he wanted to say was it takes energy to make a hydrogen bond, it takes energy to sustain a hydrogen bond, and it takes energy to break a hydrogen bond. Well, human relationships are exactly like that. It takes energy to make a human relationship, it takes energy to sustain a human relationship, and it takes energy to break a human relationship. So Bowlby theorized and convinced us that it's not an option. This is part of life. Love is attached to life and it it's attached to energy because we are attached to each other. And there is some sort of an energy between us. There are bonds between us as human beings, just like there are bonds between hydrogen atoms. So think about some of the relationships that you have been in. All right, so let's take a love relationship. Going out with somebody, getting to know them, getting used to them, and then finding a way that you can actually make a life together with this person takes a lot of energy and effort. And then when you're in a relationship, when you're actually living with somebody and you're grating against some of their personality, some of their values, some of their ideas, and they're grating against yours, and you have the invariable arguments and times of disharmony and then coming back together and feeling good about all of that, that all takes a lot of energy. It takes energy to sustain a human relationship. And then if any of you have had that awful experience of breaking up from a long-term relationship, so a relationship that was there for years, that takes energy, hurt, and it has repercussions right up until now. It takes energy or the financial resources that people have to find, the arguments, the trying to work things out, the saying, oh my gosh, it's not going to work out, then finding other people who are going to be allies and friends during this time. There's a lot that goes into breaking up a human relationship. It all takes energy. Let's take a friendship. Friendship particularly in a coronavirus time, is not that easy to come by. And a lot of energy goes into finding somebody that you can kind of enjoy yourself with, understand and accept, and they will understand and accept you. It takes all that energy. And then when you have a friend, you actually need to put energy into that relationship. Otherwise, that you will lose the friend. And same with energy needed to break that friendship. But I'm going to talk about a very special relationship that we all have, and that's a relationship with our mother. Because you see, all of us were attached to a biological mother at the time of birth. I was present at the birth of both of my sons, and it is just amazing to see how physical the attachment is between a mother and a child. First of all, they spend nine months incubating inside a mother's body. And then when they come out, they are attached by this really thick rope called the umbilicus. And it is a very physical bond. You can see that bond. And then what happens straight after birth is the mother holds the child. And that separation, which birth was, is reconciled in a very strong hug. And there are some babies that will just attach to their mothers very, very strongly. And from birth to the time when a child leaves home, if that's age 15, 20, 25, or 35, is a series of 
separations in the context of a secure environment that a mother figure and parents provide to make it safe and secure for a child to feel loved so that it can explore the world and all the newness and differentness and all the fearful things of the world safely so that there's always somewhere to come back to. That is what a home provides, a secure base for us to all explore the world and find out where we belong in the world and eventually to be separate from our parents, our mother, and get to the stage where we actually provide a secure home like that for our own children if we so choose. So there's like a biological tug of war between separation and a secure base, which is the comfort of a mother, a mother figure, or a home. And it was John Bowlby that came up with this idea that a home is a secure base that we all need to explore the world. For those of you who are literary fans, I want to bring up the example of a Charles Dickens novel of 1838, Oliver Twist. Oliver Twist is born and his mother dies. And the rest of the novel is not so much about poverty, not so much about his resilience, not so much about him doing the right thing, although all those themes are there. The theme of the novel, the way that I see it, is a person looking for where they belong, looking for a mother or a mother figure. And in a sense, the resolution of the whole novel is when he finds a family member, somebody to whom he can share family love. This person is actually his aunt. And all the twists in Oliver's life has to do with moving closer and closer to finding this aunt who becomes, in a sense, a mother figure. Uh, Oliver Twist did not have a secure base to explore the world, but he found that secure base when he found his aunt. It's the twists of fate. And Oliver, uh, being like an olive tree, he's able to endure a harsh landscape uh, that makes him able to survive. And in a way, it's a bit of the story of all of us. Back to our psychiatrists. We've heard from Renee Spitz. We've heard from John Bowlby. We're going to go to a group of psychiatrists from California, Thomas Lewis, Fari Amani, and Richard Lannon, and a book that they published in the year 2000 called A General Theory of Love. So they obviously knew the stories. They knew the studies of Renee Spitz and John Bowlby, but they asked the question, okay, how do we attach to other people? What happens between us as humans that makes us not separate, that makes this love thing something that happens between us? So their concept basically is that our brains are not separate and self-contained like we think that they are. But in our early childhood, especially the limbic system, part of the brain that basically takes care of the feelings, is hugely affected by people who are close to us. And they call this limbic resonance. And I like that word resonance because it's got a musical connotation. You will find that you resonate well with some people. And you'll find that you'll clash with some people. 
So just as two musical notes can resonate well, so too two limbic systems can resonate well together. And they came up with this theory, which they call the general theory of love, that love is an energy between us. It is our limbic systems connected. Now, the theory was that the limbic system is particularly affected by those close to us in early childhood, which I agree with, of course, but the limbic system goes on to be connected and affected by people who are close to us. Uh, there's one part of our limbic system, the anterior cingulate gyrus, that is kind of there to connect with other people. And it connects through empathy. So empathy is actually feeling with somebody else. When somebody else is in pain and you see somebody that you know who has all of a sudden a big cut on their hand, you feel pain yourself as though you have that cut. It's not as bad, obviously, but your limbic system is resonating with them in empathy to feel that. So in a sense, this is part of the biological nature of love, to feel with somebody else, particularly somebody who is close to you. Now, Louis Armani and Lanon spent a lot of time talking about the relationship between child and mother, but then they spent a lot of time talking about the relationship between therapist and a person in psychotherapy, because psychotherapy works by empathy. It works with two limbic systems that are connected and are understanding something so that one of the limbic systems, the person who wants the treatment, is getting revised, if you want. Just a few feelings being changed so that somebody gets that feeling, ah, oh, somebody understands me, somebody knows me, somebody gets it. And then with trust, in psychotherapy, that person is then able to make very small shifts in the empathy center, in the limbic system, so that somebody is able to trust other people and build relationships on their own. So in a sense, our limbic systems work like music. If you imagine you are a violin in an orchestra and there are 24 violins in an orchestra, you've got to be in tune with all the other violins. Otherwise, you're going to stick out. You're not going to resonate well. You're not going to be attuned to them. You're going to be out of step, out of tune. And when we listen to each other, as violinists do in an orchestra, then we can make sure that we're in tune with each other and that we work well together in society and with the people around us. That's being in tune. That is limbic resonance, that is empathy, that is a general theory of love. Yeah, I know, I still didn't give you a definition of love. I still wasn't able to tell you what love is. It's very difficult for me to say anything beyond why love is, other than it's there for survival. But I do want to link love to life itself. I do want to link love to a force like consciousness, a force like life, and all of those other intangible forces like gravity, magnetism, electricity, they are all forces. And even though we don't know what they are, they are something very, very real. 
So I said I would start in space and I would end in space. And just like the music of the spheres talked a lot about the musical side of astronomy, and I've left you with the musical side of love in a sense, I do want to take you to space. I want to take you to Christopher Nolan's film Interstellar. Interstellar, of course, is set in the future and shows our immense knowledge of science. But in the movie comes this amazing statement. Love is the most powerful force in the universe. Now, in Interstellar, there are black holes, worm holes, uh, warp speed, gravity, immense bodies. We are overwhelmed by the forces in outer space and how big they all are. But you see, the human race is on the brink of extinction. And what is the motivator that keeps us alive? It's the love that a father has for his daughter and the love that the daughter has for his father. Enjoy the movie. This has been Dr. Christian Heim, living for preventative mental health, love and compassion. And I'll see you next time. Well, that was the first in our series on love. So glad that you could join us. Remember, if you would like a sneak peek at Christian's new book, Seven Types of Love, pop onto our website, scroll down to the bottom and grab your free chapter from that book. We'll see you next time.